Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. So I like to remind myself that our church used to gather in Hack's living room. And what is now called Hope Kids used to meet in our garage. And that might seem strange to some of you, um, but it's not too far from the world of the New Testament. And it's not too far, actually, from the world of John's letters. Last week, if you're just joining us, we looked at John's gospel. But John did more than write a gospel. He also pastored house churches in a city called Ephesus. So today, Ephesus is called Selkuk, Turkey. And so I want you to imagine small house churches in this ancient city. And then I want you to imagine a crowd of like 30 to 50 folks of all ages crowded in the rooms of this house, worshiping Jesus, sharing a meal, encouraging one another in the way of Jesus. And then now I want you to call to mind John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, offering humble leadership to these small house churches. Well, one of the ways that he did this is by writing letters. And we have three of them in our Bibles. One, two, and three. First, second, and third, John. And if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to first John and follow along. So first John was written for, we could say, all of his house churches to pass around, to encourage as many believers as possible. Second John is much shorter and it's written to a particular house church and with a very particular purpose, namely to reject toxic pastors and their teaching. And then in third John, we see a letter written to a particular house church as well, but its purpose is the opposite side of the same coin of second John. So if second John is a warning against toxic teaching, Third John says, open your doors, open your house church to healthy teachers and healthy teaching. If you were with us last week, you know that John, historically, is always painted with an eagle. We talked a little bit why that's the case. In part, it's because John can fly high and he can give us the big picture. And he does that in his gospel. Well, I don't want this image to fool you into thinking that John is an aloof and a distant and a high above his people pastor. In these letters, 1, 2, and 3 John, we see a pastor who cares deeply for Jesus' blood-bought lambs. He cares deeply for them. And you see this in just the way that he signs off on his letters. The way he signs off in 2 John and 3 John Though I have much to write to you, I would rather use—I would rather not use paper and ink, 
Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy might be complete. He signs off the same way in 3 John, verses 13 through 14. I had much to write you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and, I, and we will talk face to face. So for John, real life, like he said, for his joy to be made complete. There's something incomplete about his joy when he's using a scroll to communicate to his people. And there is something complete about his joy when he is face to face with the people he loves. For John, real life is face to face, not scroll to scroll, or in our day, screen to screen. Amen? Yes, these are helpful tools. They were helpful tools then, as they are today, to keep, you know, sort of the bridge to distance, the bridge to time gap that we all experience with loved ones. But for John, he does not settle. He does not settle. John loves these people, wants to see them face to face. And this morning, I don't know about you, but you may long for that kind of relationship. You may long for that kind of community where that is a priority. You may long to be known. You may long to be seen. You may long for love. You may long to even become this kind of person who could say this and actually mean it and not settle with text messages or Facebook but really long to have a depth to the relationship. Well, if that is you this morning, John shows us how. But first, let's pray. Lord, would the words of my mouth and would the meditation of all of our hearts this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts, the eyes of our hearts, so that we would not be hardened to your word this morning, but that we would be soft and receptive Lord, I pray that all of us, by your Holy Spirit, would be absolutely expectant this morning. That you would speak into our lives. And by doing so, we would actually change and be transformed mysteriously and by your power. We lay down any idea that we can change ourselves by mere effort. And instead, we this morning, with empty hands of faith, lay hold of Jesus through your word. And it's in his name we pray this. Amen. Okay, so language historian Anne Kurtzon recently wrote an article entitled 20 Words That Once Meant Something Very Different. Now that is catnip for somebody like me. Uh, here are a few of my favorites. The word nice used to mean silly, foolish, and simple. Who knew? And then silly used to refer to things worthy or blessed. The word clue was a ball of yarn. It's a great list, but I think it's missing one very obvious word. And that word for me is love. I think love is a word that once meant something very different. And if I'm honest, I don't even know what it means today. I want to be a loving person at my funeral. I want people to stand up at the lectern and say, Joe loved well. Isn't that what you want to be said about you as well? But what does that mean? And who gets to decide? Today I think love is a word that means essentially whatever we want it to mean. Rabbi David Wolpe, he writes, 
It's time to change the meaning of the word love. The word is mostly used according to the first definition given in the dictionary. He goes on, an intense feeling of deep affection. In other words, love is what one feels. But for Wolf, this doesn't cut it. And in this article, he tells us that the stakes are high. He recounts way too many occasions sitting in front of someone in a very abusive situation saying, but he loves me. And so if love is just having intense feelings of deep affection, then A, that is a seriously low bar, and B, it's open to justifying all kinds of harmful behavior, as Wolf just showed. And so he argues it's time to change the meaning of the word love. Well, I think John would agree with him, but I think he would go a step further and he would likely say, don't change the meaning of love. Just recover the original meaning. In fact, go to the source. If you want to know what something means, so profoundly important as love, then let's just go to the source. And last week, we learned that John wrote a carefully curated museum, right, with the Gospel of John, of signs, of things that pointed to the beauty of Jesus. And it was therefore an invitation for all of us, and anyone who has not yet, to believe. That's what his stated purpose was in the Gospel of John. I wrote this so that you would believe. That was an invitation to you all. But his pastoral letters that we're going to look at this morning have a different aim. So to paraphrase the late Anglican Pastor John Stott, if John's gospel is an invitation, his letters, one, two, and three, are a definition. A definition. What is love? John is writing to believers who have already received, seen the beauty of Jesus, accepted the invitation. And what John sees pastorally is these folks need assurance. They need clarification. I love what New Testament scholar Gordon Fee, he does a great job summarizing the big picture of all the New Testament books. And for First John, he just makes a list of the words and phrases that John repeats. Because that's the thing about John. John is a very simple writer. He writes uh, in simple language, but he repeats what he says over and over and over again. So if you read anything that he writes in one sitting, you get a clear sense of what he is about. He's simple, but not simplistic. This is Fee. His special vocabulary tells the whole story. To remain, continue, abide, 24 times. In the truth, 9 times. Means to believe in or confess the Son to whom the Father and Spirit bear witness. It means further to be born of God, so as to walk in the light, to hear and to know God, to keep the commandment, uh, to love. The brothers and sisters, and thus to have life, which is from the beginning. And finally, to overcome the world. All of this is in contrast to the lie, deceit, denying Christ, having a false spirit, thus being anti-Christ, walking in darkness, hating one's brother, brothers and sisters, but loving the world, thus be, being in sin, which leads to death. And each of these words or phrases could be an entire sermon but I want you to notice one thing. Of all the words that John repeats, one gets the prize. Love. 
John, of course, was the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he self-understood himself. When you ask the question, John, who are you? He would say, I am loved by Jesus. That is who I am. I am loved by Jesus. This is the most important thing about me, is that I am loved by Jesus. And so is it a surprise, friends? Is it any surprise that his letters, his pastoral letters, would be dominated by his love. So if you're like me this morning, you want to experience real love, you want to be marked by real love, you want your life to be marked by this, you want to be in a community that cherishes this, that values this, that chases this, that receives this, this is, of all the good things that we could talk about, this is What gets the most press? If you are like me, then this morning, John, is what you need to hear. He defines and he clarifies love for all of us this morning. And he does this in two directions. He does it vertically and horizontally. So check this out. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. He says this, we love each other because he loved us first. So what is love? That's the question. Let's start where John starts, with the vertical. And then we can shift to our love, and to our loving life. This is how John does it, so let's do it this way ourselves. So first, what is God's love? When I take my glasses off, things get blurred. And that's just because I'm getting old. Okay, it never used to happen. But now it happens. So now I can see. I cannot see. My sermon would be extemporaneous. Probably a better sermon. But I can't see my notes. Now I see them. Well, I cannot think of a more blurry phrase than God's love. Can I get an amen? There is nothing more blurry than that statement. I need clarity. I need something to clarify. And John does that. And he does it in at least three ways. The first way is this. That God's love is eternal. There was never a time when God is not characterized by love. So John says straight up in 1 John 4 eight, God is love. God is love. Now we might yawn at such a phrase. Okay, God is love. Tell me something I don't know. But underneath that simple three-word phrase is an ocean depth of, of meaning. For John, God is love, not because he's super kind, not because he's super chill. For John, God is love, not because he's nice. For John, God is love is because God is triune. Triune. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Ocean depth, ocean depths underneath the phrase God is love, okay? Ocean depths. Like you will never understand fully depths is underneath the phrase God is love. He hints at this right off the bat in 1.3. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us. Why? Because He has given us of His Spirit. Now, if you're like me, you see that Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that's all over. That's peppered all over His letters. These references to this fellowship 
between Jesus and his Father, and his Father and Jesus, and us with him, and, and, and by the Holy Spirit. And this whole thing is going on, and John's sort of describing it, and we can skate right by it. And if you're like me, and you grew up in church, when you hear, okay, God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you just skate right by that. You're like, yeah, big what? I know that. That's like, that's what I learned in Sunday school right away. But then folks help me slow down and actually like ponder it and consider it. And folks help me see that God as Trinity is, first of all, utterly unique and mysterious. So we cannot make this up. We are, like John, simply receiving what God is saying about himself. There's no other way we can make this up. That's the first thing I would say. But to our point this morning, God as Trinity means really that is the only basis for love and for understanding what love is. And so theologian Michael Reeves puts it this way. And this is a longish quote. I like quoting people. You can tell that already. This is longer than usual, but I think it's worth it. See if you can follow along on this. Single person gods. Okay, so gods sort of uh, that the world would, uh, in a way, sort of um, think of that are just single person gods. Not triune, right? Not the true God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Single person gods having spent, so this is a sort of a mind experiment, having spent eternity alone, are inevitably self-centered beings. So we confess that God is one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That is a three-person God. This is a single-person God that he's talking about. They have to spend eternity alone, if you think about it, and therefore are inevitably self-centered beings, and so it becomes hard to see why they would ever cause anything to exist. Wouldn't the existence of a universe be an irritating distraction for the God whose greatest pleasure is looking in a mirror? Creating just looks like a deeply unnatural thing for such a God to do. And if gods do create, they always seem to do so out of an essential neediness or a desire to use to use what they create merely for their own self-gratification. That's power. But everything changes when it comes to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here is a God who is not essentially lonely. Hang on to that. But who has been loving for all of eternity as the Father has loved the Son in the Spirit. Loving others is not a strange and novel thing for the triune God at all. It is the root of who He is. God is love. That's what it is. The root of who he is. God's love, therefore, is eternal. It, he didn't just turn on love. As Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he is love. Many point out that life without a triune God creating it would be all about power. Fundamentally, this world would be about power because it would reflect a single person God who simply makes things to manipulate things. But with the triune God, the reason he made is because he spilled over into, out of his love, and wants you to experience it with him. It is gratuitous that this world even exists. It is gratuitously loving of God to create and to invite. And that is the God we worship. God is love. The base of all reality is a loving community of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Real love is eternal, God's love. God's love is physical. It seems there were people in those days who thought, in John's day, who thought that the physical world, especially the body with its secretions and with its odors, 
Uh, we're, we're just gross and below the dignity of God. But John wasn't having it. No, no. The very white-hot center of God's love for John is its physicality. God's love for John, he knows, took on flesh and bones. And that is not beneath God. This is the very first thing he says in chapter 1. We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our eyes. We touched him with our hands. He is the word of life. Why on earth is John making the point that he touched him, the word of life? Because people, these toxic teachers, were saying, no, 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 you got it all wrong. Um, you know, Jesus was cool, but he was not God in flesh. Okay, so like maybe he looked like he was flesh, but there's no way that God would go that way. And John's like, no, I leaned on love. I leaned on love. I watched love bleed. I watched love bleed at the foot of the cross. Don't you tell me that God did not become flesh. God's love is personal. It's physical. It's incarnate. John took this very personally. He was so passionate on this point that he called anybody who denied the physicality of Jesus anti-Christos, anti-Christ. You are anti-Christ. You are against the anointed one if you suggest that the anointed one wasn't physical. So we see this in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, if a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, that person has the Spirit of God. Amen? That's good. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the Spirit of the Antichristos, the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. So it turns out that the Antichrist does not look like Marilyn Manson. But instead looks like a clean-cut preacher who thinks Jesus didn't have a real body. Bodies matter. Matter matters. God's love is physical. And third, God's love is sacrificial. Remember, at the foot of the cross, John saw love believe. And so you see in chapter 5, verse 6, this interesting Verse And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's Son by His baptism in water and by shedding His blood on the cross. Chapter 5, verse 6 says, Not by water only, but by water and blood. That's a strange verse. Amen? That is just, that's a weird thing to say. Strange. Can't make this up. But what is John saying? John is saying, and implying, actually, that there were teachers in his day who were saying, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm good with the baptism of Jesus. That's clean. That's tidy. God would do that. I'm not good with God sort of in flesh dying on a cross. That's not cool. That's too bodily. And John wants to say, no, no, no. Love is physical because love is sacrificial. For our sins to be dealt with, we need God in flesh to deal with our sins. God's love is costly. Blood is costly and sacrificial. God's love is costly and sacrificial. He writes in chapter 4, verse 9, 
God showed how much He loved us by sending His one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through Him. This is real love. Here's the definition. Ready? You want to know what God's love is? John tells us, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. How so? Sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Water and blood. Sometimes um, we play telephone as a family, the hacks. And uh, by the time the original phrase makes it around to uh, makes it around the table, we're all laughing because of how lost in transit the original phrase got. Have you ever played that game? It's, it's really entertaining. I usually sort of, you know, I think you all do as well. You sort of like shift the phrase on purpose as it goes by, right? That's what I do. Because I like to laugh at the end of it, how, how drastically different it is uh, by the time it gets around the table. Well, I think something like this has happened with love, and especially God's love, over the millennia, over the ages. But unlike my game of telephone, this is no laughing matter. And so John will restore us to a clarified vision of what God's love is. And we just looked at three. We could probably unpack more. But God's love, remember, it's eternal. Eternal as God himself. The whole universe is therefore based on others-centered love. Where we envelop the other with love. The whole universe is therefore Anchored in triune love. It is an outpouring, creation itself, and an explosion of God's triune love. And so therefore salvation is a a dealing with whatever keeps us from that triune love. Do you see it? God so longs that you as his creation experience real love... That he does, God, trying God, does what he knows is necessary to bridge that division and that gap. And friends, when Jesus lived in our place, died on the cross for us, rose again, and, and if by empty hands of faith we lay hold of him, then John is very clear. You have fellowship with the triune God. You have fellowship with trying God. You get to experience that eternal and never-ending love. To be in Christ, as Paul would put it, is to be experiencing, to be having fellowship with the very love that God the Father has for God the Son. That is an amazing mystery. That is an ocean of death. And that is yours in Jesus. It's also physical. Love became flesh. And because love became flesh, it's sacrificial. His costly love took away our sins. Now, we're in a place, finally, to explore our love. Now, John has a lot to say about our love. In fact, it's a defining characteristic of what it means to be a Christian. So he says in 1 John 4, 7-8, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. But again, what is love? Well, I see three things defining, three defining things in John's letters. And the first is this. Our love is truthful. It's full of truth. Love is not some shapeless feeling. I'm talking about our love. When we consider what it would be like to love someone today, it's important to realize that that love is not some like gas, you know, or some obscure thing that sort of like is shapeless, some shapeless feeling. But there are truths that define love. 
It is truthful. Love, in other words, is not opposed to truth. Love is shaped by truth. Again, if love is rooted in God, that makes total sense. I think this is one of John's most surprising aspects of his letters. He combines two things that we so often separate. His letter is all about love, all about God's love, all about loving God, all about loving neighbor. And he also talks quite a bit about obeying God's commandments. And especially his commandment to love. But hang on, John, I thought this book was all about love. And you say, yes, love has a shape. It is truthful. I mean, just take a look, a few examples. So you must remain faithful to what you've been taught from the beginning. There is a thoughtfulness in our love. If anyone comes to your meeting and does not teach the truth about Christ, don't invite that person into your home, which would be their church, remember? Uh, Or give any kind of encouragement. In other words, if that sort of itinerant preacher comes, just say, no, no thanks. Uh Uh-uh. That's toxic. And then he says in in, uh, 3 John... I could have no greater joy than to hear that my children are following the truth. So there is no distinction, no division for John between love and truth. In other other words, love is not just a passionate feeling. It is a way. It is a way. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. How do you love in truth? Well, for John, you love. Love has truth. Love is truthful. It's anchored in truth. The reality of who Jesus is. It has ethical and even theological boundaries. Love stays, in other words, in the lines of the highway. Why? Because when you drift out of the lines of the highway, people get killed. And so it is loving for God to say that there is truth component to our love. Because people get hurt. Second thing I think John says here is that our love is tangible. Just as God's love is physical, our love is physical. Love is an action. And we see this over and over and over again. 1 John 3.16, for instance. By this we know love. Okay, how do we know love? That He laid down His life for us. Something that happened, as, as it said in the New Testament, not in a corner. You know what I mean? God's love was not like sort of hidden in a corner. No, God's love was expressly open and action-based. It was a laying down of Jesus' life for us. And therefore, we do the same. When we consider what love is, 1 John 3.16 says, it is, first and foremost, an action. It is marked by action. The way we know love is God's love in action. And finally, our love is missional. It has a purpose. Our loving life has one of the most significant purposes there could possibly be. It's even more significant than something we can make up. So we would make up, okay, our loving life is important because, you know, it's important that the people we love feel loved or something like that. Or that we don't hurt people. And those are very good, good purposes John levels it up. and He would say yes to those things, but he says you're missing the core, the core missional reason for our loving, our loving life. Take a look at 1 John 4.12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected or completed in us. Now why does John connect our loving life to the fact that we cannot see God? Any any. any idea why he would do such a thing? 
Just ponder that connection for just a second. And see what the Lord brings to your heart. Why does John connect our loving life to the fact that we cannot see God? New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, he helped me see why. In his gospel, if you looked at last week, John says something very similar. No one has ever seen God. Okay. There you go. Heard that. But the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him that. Wright says, we don't really know who God is until we look at Jesus. That's the point of John 19. He goes on and writes, now people don't really know who God is until they see it revealed in the life, and we would say, the love of Christians. We love on mission. We love so that people learn who God is. I don't know about you, but that is immensely discouraging and encouraging at the same time. <laughs> it's uh, discouraging because the church does typically a very like lousy job. And therefore represents to the watching world a very false portrait of who God is. And yet, to me it's encouraging because it means that our loving life has perhaps the most significant purpose possible. And one of the mysteries of the mission of God that we've been exploring over the past year is that God still entrusts His mission with His broken people. He so dignifies his church that he says, by my spirit, through my power, and in your weakness, you will demonstrate to the watching world who I am by your love. What a profound mark of dignity. What a profound mark of trust from the Lord. So it is, yes, discouraging, but ultimately I walk away. I think John wants you to walk away with a profound sense of, oh my goodness. My loving life has the most significance possible. So let's get very practical. When I'm about to walk into the door of a house or a business meeting or anything else, it is no exaggeration to say that when I spend myself, when I, you know, unlike Diotrephes, who's described in John's letters as one who loves putting himself first. Diotrephes is like, that's a, that's a, you know, as a New Testament professor once told me, like, that is a, a bummer to be in eternal writ, you know, the whole scriptures, like, forever. And your, your calling card as Diotrephes is he loved to put himself first, okay? That is such a bummer. That's like Pontius Pilate and the Apostles' Creed. It's like, dang it. That is not the, the legacy I wanted to leave. But listen, the Diotrephes way is a way that is putting yourself before others. And so when we walk through the door of our job or through the door of this church or through the door of our classroom and we decide by God's empowerment to put others first, to literally spend ourselves so that others may grow, the very definition of love, when we do that, we are actually showing them who God is by our actions. Our love is missional. And the greatest possible mission there is. And so I want you, as we close, to ask and then maybe even answer these two questions this morning. 
And if these two questions are helpful, maybe hang on to them and ask and then answer them every morning of your day this week. And if that's helpful, I would encourage you to maybe ask and then answer these two questions the following week. And then maybe the next two weeks. And then maybe the rest of your life. What are those two questions? Well, the first one is this. Who loved me first this morning? If it's true that verse 19 of chapter 4, we love because he loved us first, then we need to wash ourselves each morning in his first love. I heard a pastor once talk about that. Like even before you take a shower and, and, and cleanse in that physical way, get cleansed in the reality that God's love is first in your day. In Tish Warren's book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, she recounts her daily liturgy of when she makes her bed. And when she makes her bed, she reminds herself that she is God's beloved. Before she could do anything great for God that day, before she could do massive screw-ups in the name of God that day, before any of that, she reminds herself, in Christ, I am God's beloved. This is John the Beloved's tactic as well. Who loved me first this morning? Ask yourself that. Ask yourself that every single morning. In chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, listen to what he says. I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, because you know him who is from the beginning, because you have overcome the evil one, because you know the Father, because you know him who is from the beginning, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. That is before you could do anything all day. Before you could succeed or fail, John wants you to wash in the first love of God. And the second question is this. Who can I love well today? And name them. Name that person. Who can I love well today? I like this question from Pete Scazzaro. Quote, what might be one practical way you can slow down in order to love someone in the next 24 hours? Scazzaro, if you've been reading him in our home groups, is a helpful critic of the American church. And he wonders out loud when the church will begin to make loving well the mark of maturity. Not theological knowledge, not celebrity talent, not personal charisma, just loving well. Slowing down and loving well. When will that be the mark of maturity? So who can you love today? When you ask and answer those two questions, who loved me first and who can I love today? John says you are completing God's love. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. His gift, in other words, of love to you is latent with possibility. It's a gift that gifts others. During the pandemic, this is a, 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 a hazy memory, maybe because I pushed it away, because I felt bad. 
I think I was gifted by one of you a mother from your, not a real mother, but a, uh, a sourdough mother. Do you know the difference? There's a, there's a big difference, okay? So a sourdough mother, yeah, I was, not, I was not given your actual mother, but I was given your sourdough mother, which is the, um, the bit of dough that has the yeast kind of active in it. It's what makes sourdough bread. When you use some of that, you knead it into the, the dough that you're baking with. It actually gives it that sour, delicious um, flavor. Well, people like treat their mother, it's called a mother, okay? That little bit of, of, uh, of culture. They treat that like their mother. Let's be honest. I mean, it's appropriately named, at least better than their pet. This thing is so important to people who make sourdough bread. It takes a lot of work to cultivate. It takes a lot of work to keep alive. And so this was, in a way, a great gift to me, but the sad thing is it just sat in the back of my fridge. And I never made anything with it. In fact, I eventually threw it away, I think. And again, it's hard to remember because I feel bad. Well, that's what we do when we receive the love of God in a profound way through Jesus. And then we sort of put it in the back of the fridge. I mean, that's what it is. Because the love of God that he gives us is latent with growth. It's, it's generative. It's generative. Okay? Like, the, like God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who creates out of an overflow of his love... That's what it does. It multiplies. Love multiplies. It sort of, it sort of bubbles over like your child's um, volcano uh, experiment for science class. That's just what love does. It's what it's meant to do. And so when we sort of receive the amazing love of God, we put it like if we put a plastic cap on it and we throw it in the back of our fridge and we forget about it and then we throw it away. We are not completing God's love, John would say. You know, some translations say perfecting his love. And it's pointed out that that might not be the best way to understand this idea. Because when we hear perfect, we think flawless. And that's not what John's saying. John's simply saying you are completing. You are, in a sense, um, you're essentially letting God's love in Christ go through you into the intended targets that God would have his love hit. He invites you to so much more than just a blessed life in Christ. He invites you to spend your life. For the sake of others. That is the love of life. And Lord, we accept the invitation this morning. And this morning, maybe some of us for the first time, we, we, we just were kind of in the dark on what love actually is. And now that we know what it is, we want it. And we want it in Jesus. And so we lay down our arms, we lay down our rebellion, and we come to you this morning gladly, entering this eternal life, this freedom that you give us in Jesus. We long for the freedom to put others first. We are so desperately sick of putting ourselves first in every instance and in every season of life. We are so desperate for the freedom to see you as beautiful and to see spending ourselves as life. And so would you make that uh, miracle occur in our hearts and as a community? And would you do it by loving us first? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about Hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.